As the opioid crisis continues, deaths among young people have surged. Opioid-related deaths in Ontario for 15 to 24-year-olds nearly tripled in less than a decade. These numbers come from a report by the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, and their lead investigator is Dr. Tara Gomes. I was certainly concerned when we saw how quickly these opioid-related deaths have been increasing in recent years against a backdrop of declining rates of treatment for opioid use disorder in, in our younger demographic. Today, Dr. Gomes is here to talk about why this trend is happening and the politics around harm reduction. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and this is The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Dr. Gomes, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. So let's start by breaking this down a bit. Uh, Within the younger age range, uh, who's the age that's most affected and what drugs are we talking about here? So we look specifically at people aged 15 to 24 years old. Between 2014 and 2021, there were 752 opioid-related deaths in that population. But we do see that the majority of those deaths are within the 18 to 24-year age group. So it is the older end of that age spectrum where we're seeing the majority of harms. What's really important to stress is that these are really deaths and overdoses that are happening from fentanyl in the illicit or unregulated drug supply. It's actually quite rare now to see opioid-related deaths that involve pharmaceutical opioids like oxycontin or hydromorphone that we were talking about a decade ago when we were talking about the opioid crisis. These are really deaths and overdoses that are happening from people who are accessing that illicit supply and are being exposed to very potent and unpredictable substances within that supply. So Tara, the the big question, I guess, is what's actually causing this spike in youth opioid deaths? Unfortunately, I think it's, you know, a combination of a a number of different factors that are coming together at the same time to create this kind of perfect storm of harm for everybody across Canada, but specifically looking at this younger demographic. So when we looked at what's been happening during the pandemic, we saw that among the adolescent and young adult age group, about half of people who were dying from an opioid-related cause had an opioid use disorder diagnosis. So this is essentially the medical term for an addiction to opioids. But only a third of them had access treatment in the last year. And that's actually lower than what we see in our older populations. And I, I think there are a few factors that are tied into this. So Our treatment program is primarily based on providing drugs like methadone or buprenorphine that people get at a pharmacy. Typically every day they have to go and have an observed dose of these medications, especially in the first few months of treatment. And that treatment can last for years. So there are enormous barriers for everybody trying to access treatment because of these rigorous criteria that you have to meet. But in particular for younger people, the idea of having to go to a pharmacy every single morning to get a dose of your methadone, having to navigate that against school and and family and perhaps hiding your substance use and then having to figure out how to do this can be really overwhelming for them, as well as thinking about the impacts of their quality of life, of having to commit for the next several years, perhaps, of having to consistently be going and picking up these doses. So I think that When we consider how we're providing treatment, it often isn't meeting the needs of many people who are uh, seeking treatment across Canada, but specifically in this younger age group, we also need to think about how we can design our treatment programs to better meet their needs and be more accessible to them. 
I mentioned methadone and buprenorphine. The brand name product of buprenorphine most commonly used is a, a drug called Suboxone. Typically, what we're hearing from providers, especially when thinking about younger populations accessing treatment, is that they prefer to prescribe Suboxone. It's a drug that has buprenorphine and naloxone together, and it's generally seen as a safer option. It's harder to overdose if you're taking buprenorphine. So mm. providers feel more comfortable prescribing that to younger demographics. But what we're hearing from people who are actually accessing treatment and people who are using drugs is that Suboxone isn't always meeting their needs, especially when they've been exposed to fentanyl in the drug supply, which is very potent. Buprenorphine or Suboxone doesn't always help stave off that withdrawal and give them the effects that they need. So if we have this competition between what providers are willing to provide to young people, which is Suboxone, and a treatment option that young people are actually looking for, which is methadone, when those don't match, it can be really challenging for people because they're not actually able to access the kind of treatment that they're looking for that will meet their needs, that will give them their best chance of being able to stay in treatment for the length of time that they need to, to get the benefits from that treatment. What role did the pandemic play in people being able to access treatment? The pandemic was really interesting because what we saw that was really, I think, incredibly promising was that clinical practice actually changed very quickly. So clinicians were given guidance to start allowing people to get more take-home doses. So typically, people have to kind of go to the pharmacy every day for an observed dose until they're stabilized on treatment, and then you start getting one take-home dose every week. So you have you know six observed doses and one that you can take home. And over time, as you demonstrate that you're able to stay in treatment and kind of align with these very strict criteria, you can get more take-home doses. Very quickly in the pandemic, they made this decision to start giving people more rapid take-home doses because they just couldn't go to the pharmacy every day. And they recognized that and said, okay, the benefit-risk balance here needs to shift and we need to accept that we need to give people more take-home doses of methadone and suboxone. And so we saw these very quick changes in clinical practice. And, and we actually did a study published last year that showed that those changes actually helped people stay in treatment. They didn't increase people's risk of overdose. And I I think that that is something positive that we can say did come from the pandemic, which is that it, it showed us that our historical approach to treatment that has been incredibly regimented, that has been forced really strict requirements on people with an opioid use disorder to go to the pharmacy every day and to have all elements of their life really have to be focused on getting to that pharmacy on time, that we can change those requirements and they can actually help better support people staying in treatment and aren't actually increasing people's risk of overdose. Yeah. I want to ask you about the supply because you mentioned fentanyl is a big factor behind these deaths. Um, can you tell me what, what about the supply that they're getting is, is unpredictable? There are a few elements. I would say the main change in our supply that has been incredibly difficult has been the arrival of benzodiazepines into the fentanyl supply. This had started just before the pandemic. We started to see benzodiazepines, which are essentially an anti-anxiety sedative type drug. They were being found in the fentanyl supply. And that has continued to grow throughout the pandemic. And that's really problematic for a few reasons. One being that our typical response to an overdose, which is administering naloxone, which is a reversal agent for opioids, does not reverse the effects of benzodiazepines. We also know that it's actually led to some changes in the way that people use drugs because they are anticipating being so highly sedated by the combination of opioids and benzodiazepines, which essentially work to 
together in your system to increase the sedating effect of both of those drugs, that people are then using stimulants like cocaine or methamphetamines to counteract those effects. People want to keep themselves and their property safe, especially if they're vulnerably housed and they might be using drugs in public. And so now you're leading to one supply pushing people to be using opioids, benzodiazepines, and stimulants together, which can be even more risky and dangerous for people. We, we do hear a lot about fentanyl contamination. What is the role of fentanyl in all of this? Yeah, so fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. So it means it's not something naturally occurring. You don't um, get it from poppy plants, for example. You can actually synthesize it in a lab. It is very potent, which means that a small amount of fentanyl can give you an equivalent effect as a larger amount of another opioid. So sometimes people get confused because fentanyl can be prescribed. There are fentanyl patches, for example, that are used for pain. But the fentanyl that we are seeing now that is contributing to the deaths is fentanyl that is not coming from a prescription source. It is coming from this illicit supply because people can manufacture it in clandestine labs. They can easily transport small amounts across borders because it's so potent. A small amount can be kind of cut into a large amount of drug that is then sold. And so that is really the shift that we've seen beginning in Ontario in around 2015 and 2016 where instead of seeing heroin as the predominant drug in the illicit opioid supply, it really shifted towards fentanyl. And so that means that the amount of fentanyl in any amount of drug that you purchase can vary because usually they cut the fentanyl in with other cutting agents to increase the volume of the drug that they are selling. So you don't know how much fentanyl you're getting. You don't know if it's being mixed in with other drugs like benzodiazepines. And then because fentanyl is is kind of made in a lab, people often kind of tweak the molecule a little bit to make what are called fentanyl analogs. So you've probably heard of drugs like carfentanyl. Mm-hmm. That is a, an analog of fentanyl. It's a very similar molecule, but it's actually even more potent. So people are kind of constantly also tweaking the fentanyl molecule, making slightly different fentanyls, which can have all different degrees of potency that people may not have encountered before. And it makes it so hard for people who use drugs to protect themselves, because if they knew what they were getting, the same way when we go to the alcohol store, you know, the LCBO or what have you, we know in the bottle what percentage of alcohol is in there so we can change our consumption patterns based on that. People don't know what is in the supply of opioids that they're getting. So they aren't able to actually protect themselves by changing their consumption patterns based on what what the potency is, because they have no idea what that potency is of the drug they're taking. Yeah. And so you said kind of around 2015, 2016 is when we really saw this influx of fentanyl. So is this, I mean, if we're looking back at the last seven years, like the, the, the time that your research is looking over, is this kind of a, a big cause in the spike of opioid-related deaths then? Is this influx of fentanyl in the supply? Yeah, it, it really is. And this is not anymore a crisis of prescription opioids or combinations of different opioids. This is predominantly one that is driven by fentanyl. And in this younger age group, we saw even during the pandemic, that impact of fentanyl increase. So 94% of deaths in 15 to 24 year olds in that first year of the pandemic had fentanyl involved compared to 84% in the year before. So still primarily fentanyl across both of those years, but you can even see just in that first year of the pandemic how essentially almost all of the opioid-related deaths in this, in this younger age group involve fentanyl. 
you were saying they a lot of them weren't accessing treatment, but were they seeing other healthcare providers who who maybe could have helped, maybe could have helped step in and, and, and improve their situation? We did see a really high degree of engagement with the healthcare system before death in this demographic and quite broadly as well in, in other age groups as well. But specifically in the 15 to 24 year olds, we found that about one in four had some kind of healthcare encounter. So visit to a doctor or to an emergency department or being hospitalized for some reason in the week before death. Wow, one in four, that seems actually pretty high. It's very high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that we often, when we have conversations on this topic, I think people gravitate towards assuming that this is a population of people that are hard to reach, that are really disengaged from the healthcare system, that you know we couldn't have done anything because we didn't know how to find them. And I think what this shows is that in fact, these are often people that are actively contacting our healthcare system for a variety of different reasons. We also saw in in this younger age group that about three quarters of the people who died of an opioid toxicity had some kind of depression or anxiety diagnosis. So had other mental health diagnoses as well. They're engaging in our healthcare system. And we need to make sure that when that happens, that these healthcare spaces are inclusive, that they feel safe for people to come and speak about their substance use, and that they understand the best ways to connect people to services so that they can ultimately try and prevent this harm that that is often happening very soon after a healthcare encounter. We'll be back in a minute. So it sounds like a, a big part of this issue, at least, is around the supply. And I know we talk a lot now about safe supply and treatment programs. So, Tara, what what kind of treatments and safe supply programs are actually available in Ontario right now for people to access? There are a lot of different options that exist within Ontario, although I would say that they're not all equally accessible in all parts of the province. So obviously, we have treatment options like methadone and suboxone that are prescribed, you know, by physicians and that are typically the first line option for people who have an addiction diagnosis. There's also been a lot of investment into harm reduction that is available across the province. So we have safe consumption sites, so spaces where people can go and use drugs, where there are people there who are trained to help respond if you do have an overdose. We also have naloxone that is freely available at all pharmacies. You can go into any pharmacy. You don't even have to show a form of ID and you can be provided with a free naloxone kit. So I would urge everybody to go and do that. I think it's a simple thing that everybody can have on hand. And then we also have the evolution of safer opioid supply programs that have largely been federally funded and rolled out across the country. And we have several here in Ontario where people are prescribed generally hydromorphone tablets that they can use instead of the unregulated fentanyl supply. And so the idea there is to give people a known amount of a reliable source of opioids so that they don't have to rely on the illicit supply. And how have other provinces handled this issue of a contaminated drug supply? What, what are they doing on this front? So in British Columbia, for example, they have a similar combination of treatment and harm reduction services. They do have broader access to other types of safer supply programs. So um, provision of injectable hydromorphone or injectable drugs as opposed to hydromorphone tablets that can better meet people's needs. Um, And that is less accessible here in Ontario. British Columbia has also moved towards decriminalization of drugs for personal use, which is another approach that has not been rolled out elsewhere across the country. Alberta has taken a very different approach 
approach more recently where they're very focused on abstinence and recovery and residential treatment. They have really disinvested in harm reduction. And unfortunately, what we've seen there in recent months is some of the highest levels of, of overdoses and opioid-related deaths in that province than we've seen before. Each province is taking a different approach. And often that approach is informed, at least in part, by what political party is in power and where they personally believe the right approach is. And, and unfortunately, that is isn't always based in in best evidence. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to talk about this too. Safe supply has has really become a heated political issue. We see this in Alberta. We also see this with federal conservative party leader Pierre Polyev, right? He's he's spoken out strongly against safe supply. Our common sense plan is to take the money away from subsidizing heroin-like drugs and instead put all of that money into recovery and treatment to sue. And he says that government-provided drugs are, are actually making the problem worse. Is there any merit to that argument? Certainly, it's an argument we're hearing a lot lately and has been really... I think challenging for people within community who have been providing these programs and have been really putting in every effort to try and save lives of people within their community. It's true that the evidence is developing for Safer Supply because it is a a newer approach, but some of the statements that are made that Safer Supply has no evidence backing are actually just not true. There are more than 20 peer-reviewed publications that have now been published that have studied the effects of Safer Supply. We led a study that was published last year that evaluated the longest-standing Safer Opioid Supply Program here in Ontario based out of London. And that study showed that people who entered into the Safer Supply Program had immediate reductions in emergency department visits, in infectious complications from drug use. They had no increased risk of overdose. They had no opioid-related deaths while in the program. So there's definitely a lot of evidence that has been accumulating primarily over the last couple of years that shows that these programs can work and can be really helpful, particularly for people who have tried treatment and it hasn't worked for them, people who regularly access the illicit drug supply and are experiencing enormous amounts of harms from overdoses, from brain injuries, from infectious complications. We obviously need to continue to grow and adapt these models, but I'm very concerned at some of the conversation, the direction that conversations are going, just saying that this is just providing people with another source of drug and it's not going to help them and we're just helping support addictions or support expansion of this crisis. Um, When you talk to people who are part of these programs, and I've talked to many people who are part of the Safer Supply programs, these programs have really helped them get their lives back. They've helped them stabilize. They've helped them be able to find employment and, and keep their families together. And I think that we need to really think about not just having one approach and thinking that one approach is going to work here, but having a a slate of different options and understanding that we need to meet people where they are and not everybody is going to benefit from different programs and services in the same way. So if we have options and we listen to what people are asking for, we can help meet them where they are, help provide them with what they need in that moment, and then help connect them to healthcare, help connect them to treatment over time or other supports that they might need. But just forcing people into one route and saying it's all or nothing, you have to go to residential treatment or we're not going to help you is really accepting that you're okay with letting people die. Letting people who can't access or are are not finding the benefit from those options 
die, because that's essentially what we're accepting if we're focusing on only one channel or one option for people who use drugs. Tara, thank you so much for for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Jay Coburn helped produce this episode. Our summer producer is Nagin Nia. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Adrian Chung is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.